Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We turn our hearts and minds to you and ask that you would dwell with us, direct us, restore us to your image, and let us uh, um, bathe in your presence here today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly background characters in Old, Old Testament. And the lesson title this week is Gehazi, Missing the Mark. Uh, let's go to Sunday's lesson. And who was Gehazi? Elisha's servant. And exactly the lesson makes a big emphasis of the idea of him being a servant. And in the first paragraph, somebody read the first paragraph begins, being a servant means. Somebody read that for us. Being a servant means primarily that one puts aside one's own wants, wishes, and comfort and involves oneself totally in someone else's life. A servant is there to assist the master in carrying out the master's plans, wishes, and activities. Sometimes being a servant involves carrying messages, accompanying someone, acting for the person, and doing menial jobs that need to be done. At other times, it involves managing finances and households, but always the servant acts not to further his own ends but to further his masters. What do you think about uh, this idea of, uh, of being a servant? We are all servants. We're all servants, she said. Uh, as you thought about this idea in God's kingdom, are there certain attributes that, that you think are essential to being a faithful servant? Would, would you, could you list any that would be essential? Loyalty. Loyalty, okay. Would that be essential? Others, any others? Trustworthiness. Trustworthiness, okay. Those are two on my list already. Yep, loyalty, trustworthiness. Any others? Willing to be taught. Oh, I like that. Willing to listen and be taught. Yes, excellent. It's on my list too. Any others? Humility. Humility, okay. Alrighty, humility. I didn't have that one, but that's a good one. I'm adding it. Good. Humility. Obedience, does that count? Should it, should it faithful? Yeah, serve and be obedient. How about... Faithfulness. Faithfulness. A kind of trustworthiness and kind of goes the same thing in there. Can you name any, any names of, of, of note from Scripture who were, who were faithful servants in God's cause? Eliezer. Eliezer. Okay. What about Abraham's servant? Remember he sent his servant over to, to find a wife for his son? His name isn't given. It's just Abraham's servant, his chief servant, his chief steward. What about Naaman? We're going to talk about Naaman today. His servants, did he have faithful servants? Did they help him in any way? Yes. Yes, yes. We're going to find out about his servants today. What about Jesus? Would you consider Jesus a servant? Mm -hmm. What does it say in in Philippians chapter uh, 2 verses 5 through 11, it says, Your attitude should be the same as Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Servant. Being made in, the, in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in the heavens and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, does the Bible give us this, this real perspective that, it, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of service? 
A kingdom where in love we serve one another. Does the Bible teach us this principle? Then how do we make sense of and how do we work in the balance, John 15, 15, where Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made made known to you. So how do we put this idea of servanthood and friendship together? Yes. I don't think God wants slavishness in a relationship as far as our interaction. He wants a service of love. He wants to have friendship, a close relationship, not just one where you go do this, you go do that, versus uh, where we offer ourselves in loving service to each other. I think that's more the thought. Do you like what he's just said there? And I want you to let that, that thought per- permutate through your mind and think about the potential implications of that. Um, for those of you who haven't heard, uh, Graham Maxwell died this week. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, very sad. Very sad. I got an email from Sherry this week. And as you know, Graham Maxwell is the author of Servants or Friends, Another Look at God. And Graham spent much of his life working uh, to try and spread the truth about our God of love and the fact that God loves us and wants to have a friendship relationship with us. And he actually became under, some of you may know, serious attack uh, in our church for the idea that God wants us to have friendship with him. Uh, there were people who would allege that um, such an idea causes an imbalance and distorts the biblical picture and that what God wants is servanthood. Uh, not friendship. So the question is very apropos for us today. Um, where do you find that balance between the biblical principle of servanthood and Christ's invitation to not call us servants, but rather call us friends? Where's that balance? We start out as servants. And as we become closer to Christ and have a closer relationship, we can become his friends. There is, of course, a passage in uh, 2 Corinthians where it talks about being reconciled to Christ. The passage about reconciliation in the good news talks about friendship with God and that what he wants is he wants to take his enemies and turn them into friends or reconcile us back to God. Is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend? Yes. Yes. You get friendly service at a restaurant and not even know the people. <laughs> yes. Is it, which do you think is God's ideal for our relationships with Him and with each other? Friends. Yes. Does 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 friendship? When you come to friendship with someone, does that eliminate service? Or in fact, isn't it true when you really have heart, love, friendship for somebody, you're more you're more likely to do even more service for them. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. And so this idea that elevating or promoting the idea of of Christ's invitation to be friends somehow causes an imbalance of Scripture, I think, is wrong. What do you think? I think as we come into real friendship with God, we're going to be more motivated to be lovingly serving Him and others. True or not? In your own life, as you've come to know him more, do you, do you find that you are more likely to be involved in, in service and giving to yourself to help others or not? Isn't that true? Yeah. Let's see if we can't expose and pull the threads of distortion. How is the, the, the idea of servanthood and friendship 
been distorted and how have you encountered distortions of that idea? And what impact? What were the consequences? What are the ripple effects of those distortions? One distortion would be blind obedience. Blind obedience. Servants do what the master says. They don't ask any questions. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Have you seen bumper stickers like that? Yes. Now, that's good servanthood mentality, isn't it? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Don't ask any questions. You do what you're told. The Lord said it. We don't ask questions. We don't need evidence. We don't need to think. No human reason should be involved because, I mean, if the Lord said it, we should just, un- we should just do it and without, without question. What happens? What's the consequence if you accept that idea of, uh, that that is God's ideal, that that is what God wants for us? If we accept that and begin practicing it, what is the consequence? Sometimes we believe lies blindly. Okay, sometimes we believe lies. What else? We can be deceived by Satan. We can be deceived by Satan in the end because an angel of light is coming and he's going to purport to, to uh, just, you know, take this on faith. You know, Bill Clinton stood up for the nation. I did not touch that woman. I'm the president. I said it. Uh, just believe it and don't ask any questions, right? We lose our ability to reason it out. Oh, there. Okay. There's another consequence. What actually happens to the mind of the person who practices that method? We lose, over time, our God-giving reasoning and discerning abilities. Remember, in in Hebrews chapter 5, it says that the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong, Hebrews 5.12. Well, how can you develop that ability by practice if you take this other position of, well, we don't ask questions, we just accept everything God says and just do it. We, we, We take that servant role. The master said it, we do it. Now, what is it God wants from us? And parents, if you're, if, you're, if you're difficult on this question, think about what is it you want for your children? No. Do you want children to grow up who have, a, have incorporated into their thinking a code, a list of instructions that you have given them during their childhood, and they blindly and thoughtlessly follow the rules without any appreciation for why? Is that what you want for them? No. Or do you want them at some point to begin thinking, to begin reasoning, to begin comprehending, to begin appreciating, to begin saying, hey, that makes us, I like that. I, I, don't, I love that. Do you want to see their character develop in certain ways that require them to process and think? Or do you simply want to give them a list of rules and require strict obedience? And, yeah, back there, Russ. You know, if, if the servant mentality was what God wanted, it doesn't fit with the whole great controversy understanding. Isn't, isn't he wanting to have his image restored within us? And doesn't that mean that we have to reason and think? Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, be white like snow. Isn't a friend a servant? And he wants us to be friends, so by default we'll be servants as well. Exactly. Exactly, yes. But there, we were talking about how this idea gets distorted. And haven't you heard it distorted that a servant doesn't ask questions, a servant just obeys, a certain does, servant does what he's told, and they, and, they, and they eliminate the friendship aspect. They don't have friends who serve, they have servants who obey. And that, I think, is a distortion, yes. If you train your children that way, eventually they're going to rebel against it. Yes, a man convinced against his will. Of the same opinion still. Is that what God wants from us? All of us convinced under the force of threat of his immense power to do it his way, but our minds have never thought it through to be convinced in heart. No, that's not what he wants. 
That's what he wants. So consider these quotes. The first one is out of Signs of the Times, October 6, 1909. Christ maintained his disguise till he was to, until he had interpreted the scriptures and had, this is on the road to Emmaus, two men walking the road to Emmaus. Christ maintained his disguise until he had interpreted the scriptures and had led them to an intelligent faith in his life, his character, his mission to earth, and his death and resurrection. He wished the truth to take firm root in their minds, not because it was supported by his personal testimony but because the typical law and the prophets of the Old Testament agreeing with the facts of his life and death presented unquestionable evidence of that truth. Boy, is there a difference of believing it? And I tell this to my patients all the time. I will educate them on some principle they need to do in their life, some change, maybe smoking cessation, maybe a healthy lifestyle change, maybe maybe something they need to apply in a relationship, a principle of of liberty they need to apply in the way they're treating their spouse. I, I educate them on this, but then I tell them, now, look, I don't want you to do this because I said it. Don't walk out of here and say, hey, my doctor said to do it, so if he said it, I, I believe it. I, I should just go do it. That would be a horrible reason to do it. I said, I want you to take what I'm telling you, think it through. Weigh it out for yourself. Look at the evidences. And when you're convinced and you agree that it really is reasonable and appropriate, then do it. This is what God is wanting for us. He doesn't want us just to do it because he said it, even though what he says is right. He wants us to come to have that transforming uh, transformation internal to ourselves that we do it because we agree, and that changes us. Does that make sense? And then how about this quote? Um, Review and Herald, March 8, 1887. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. So if you haven't been blessed with reasoning powers, you are excused. (laughs) But for those who have been blessed with reasoning powers, we are to become intellectual Christians. They are not requested to believe without evidence. Therefore, Jesus has enjoined upon all to search the scriptures. Let the ingenious inquire and the one who would know for himself what is truth exert his mental powers to search out the truth as it is in Jesus. Any neglect here is at the peril of the soul. We must know individually the prescribed conditions. Notice the prescribed. Doctors get prescriptions. God has given us a prescription, okay? We must know individually the prescribed conditions of entering into eternal life. We cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind or another's judgment. We cannot trust the salvation of our souls to ministers. Really? Wow. Revelation, to ministers, to idle traditions, to human authorities, or to pretensions. The Lord positively demands of every Christian an intelligent knowledge of the Scriptures. Notice it's not a knowledge of the Scriptures. An intelligent knowledge of the Scriptures. We have to actually think it through, understand the meanings, weigh the evidences, come to our own conclusions. This develops your mind. It develops you, the person. It develops the powers God has invested and created you to have. Satan wants to destroy the image of God within. He wants us to be thoughtless, non-thinking beasts. That's what he wants for us. And you see in Peter, those who go into sin, it's like they're brute, brute beasts, creatures of instinct. And there's certain religious traditions that actually have a consequence to destroy your higher faculties, to destroy your capacities to reason and think. Have us flopping around on the floor like a fish when the Spirit comes. You know, this is not the movements of the Spirit of God. Thoughts about any of this? Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Graham's ministry, Pinole.com, has asked that those who have... How many of you have had been touched in your life by reading or having something with Graham? Okay? 
Yeah. Um, have asked those who have had some um, memory, some experience, something that was special, to uh, email them. They're, they're compiling a list of, of memories and thoughts and experiences about Graham. They're going to have a, a memorial service sometime in January for him. And so you can do that at pineold.com. In 1984, Graham wrote the following, and I, I found it quite, um, quite clear and, and, and powerful. This is what he wrote. I believe that the most important of all Christian beliefs is the one that brings joy and assurance to God's friends everywhere. The truth about our Heavenly Father that was confirmed at such cost by the life and death of His Son. God is not the kind of person His enemies have made Him out to be. Arbitrary, unforgiving, and severe. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is just as loving and trustworthy as His Son. Just as willing to forgive and heal. Though infinite in majesty and power, our Creator is an equally gracious person who values nothing higher than the freedom, dignity, and individuality of His intelligent creatures. That their love, their faith, their willingness to listen and obey may be freely given. He even prefers to regard us not as servants, but as friends. This is the truth revealed through all the books of Scripture. This is the everlasting good news that wins the trust and admiration of God's loyal children throughout the universe. Like Abraham and Moses, the ones who God spoke of as his trusted friends, God's friends today want to speak well and truly of our Heavenly Father. We covet as the highest of all commendations the words of God about Job. He has said of me what is right. Isn't that great? Yes, and that, of course, is available on their website, front page, right on the website. You can find that. It's also going to be in our notes uh, this week. Thoughts about that, that idea? Do you, do you like that perspective of God? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any comments, questions about that? It's the only one that makes sense. That's the only one that makes sense. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So if we look at Scripture and this idea of servanthood, any group of people stand out in your mind as being identified by God as a group, as his servants. Not an individual, but a group of people that were identified as his servants. Children of Israel. Children of Israel. Any, any other specific group? Did you know the prophets were called his servants? All the prophets were referred to in Scripture as his servants. You can find this, for instance, in Revelation ten seven. It says, But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now that text, I, I pulled that one particularly because it's filled with some rich things there. The seventh angel is about to sound. When is that in human history? When, when in human history is the seventh angel about to sound its trumpet? And where would that be? It's, it's now. Any time now, the seventh angel is about to sound. It's this time of human history. We are living in the time of human history when the seventh angel is about to sound its trumpet. Are we not? Yeah. So it's now. And it says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound its trumpet, that would be these days. Yeah. These days, the mystery of God will be accomplished. What's the mystery of God that will be accomplished? There's a mystery of God that's going to be accomplished in these days. Revelation of his character. Revelation of his character. Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, here's what it says in Ephesians uh, 3, 8 through 12 regarding this. It says, although I'm less, least, less than the least of all God's people, the grace, uh, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things, 
His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Okay, there's something about a mystery here that has been kept hidden, but that, uh, when it's fully accomplished, enables us to approach God with freedom and with confidence. Thoughts about that? Any thoughts so far? Is, is the picture starting to come clear? What is the mystery? Why has it been kept hidden? Why is it at the end of time at the seventh angels about to sound his trumpet that this is going to be accomplished? What is this mystery that was accomplished in Christ and will be accomplished here at the end of time? Well, she's saying it, the character of God. Other thoughts? Yes. Colossians, excuse me, 1.27 says Christ in you. Ah, Actually, yeah, Colossians 1.26. You're exactly right. Colossians 1.26. It says, I have become a servant of the commission, gave, uh, gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden from all the ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, verse 27, to them has God chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so seventh angel is about to sound. The mystery of God is going to be accomplished as announced by a servant of the prophet. The mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And somehow this mystery enables us to have freedom and confidence as we enter God's presence. What does that tell you? Freedom and confidence as we enter God's presence. Yes? Does that merely say that it's not that he's doing anything different or we are simply at the point where, ah, I get it. I get it fully. So she, she's saying, it's not that God is doing anything different, it's that at, at this point in time, maybe there's people who are finally going, ah, comprehension, light's going on, I get it, I understand, I see God for who he is. And, and when we see God for who he is, where, do, where can we look in, in universal history to get the clearest picture of God? Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, is Jesus Christ fully God? If you've seen me, you've seen? If you were on earth 2,000 years ago, and you were the worst sinner on earth, maybe a prostitute caught in an act of adultery or something, would you need to fear going into Christ's presence? Maybe you're a betrayer who's going to betray Jesus and turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. Would you need to fear going into God's presence? What did Jesus do but get down on his knees and wash the feet of his betrayer? You see, when we come into the truth about God as Christ revealed him to be, does it take away our fear of God? Should we be terrified of him? I'm not talking about the fear of admiration, the fear of awe that, that sometimes the word fear can be used. Fear God and give glory to him. Awe, admire, respect. I'm not talking about taking away that kind. I'm talking about the terror fear. Should, should we have that kind of fear of God? No. Some people argue that we should, but we should actually be afraid of him because the Bible says fear him. Well, Perfect love casts out all fear. And if we come into the unity of Christ, will we have his love in our hearts? And if we have his love in our hearts, will we still be terrified of him? No, so it can't be that kind of fear. It can't be that kind of fear. Won't, perfect love won't count, cast out all in admiration and respect, will it? No, but it will cast out the terror, the dread. Yes? Maybe this is simplified, but I had a boss one time that I dearly loved. She was just the nicest person in the whole world. And I didn't ever cross her because she was... Very precise in saying, I do not want you to do this. But because she watched out for me all the time, I didn't even question it. 
you know, and I look at God and say, what is the fear? The fear is, I know you're watching out for me even though I want to go do my own thing. So I won't. Because I know, you know, you know there's consequences, but you don't really want, you want to, but you don't want to. You want to do your own thing. But then you think, no. He knows what's going on. And I, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe I'm not very clear. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Is the fear simply of the consequences that we will have uh, from sin that people fear God? Or is it that people have ideas that God, in order to be holy and right, must use his power to punish us? Why, why do people fear him? She says not the punishment. That She says people don't fear him because they fear he'll punish him. Well, I think some people do, but I don't think that's the key. You, she doesn't think that's the key. What do you all think? The world thinks that. I think that the root is distorted God concepts. People have false ideas about who he is. This is why um, life eternal, John 73, this is life eternal that you will live for eons and eons of time and your biology, biologic systems will never stop working. Oh, that you will know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Now, notice Christ doesn't give eternal life with a a time length. He gives it with an experience of knowing God. This is what eternal life is about, knowing him. Well, if knowing him is is eternal life, then eternal death is not knowing him. Satan's power, father of lies, always been about misrepresenting God, which instills, as we believe those lies, it instills fear into our hearts as we, we don't know him. Yes. If there well, there are people that teach that we should fear God because He's a fearful God, why? What is their advantage of teaching that? I don't understand the advantage of teaching somebody to fear somebody like that. It depends on whether you're dealing with the mature or the children. I think two examples I can give you. One, I think I gave this a few months back. Um, I was asked one year to do some sex education for some eighth grade boys, thirteen, fourteen years of age. <laughs> And I was trying to present to them the higher pictures of God's kingdom, of altruistic concern, and how if they don't maintain their fidelity, if they go out and engage in promiscuous sex, that they hurt people. They hurt the girls they're involved with. It damages their character. It will hurt others to do this. Wasn't getting much traction there. Didn't seem to have much interest at that point. Blah, 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 blah. You could hear, they were hearing me like, Char, you know, Charlie Brown, here's the teacher. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So then I pulled out the pictures of sexually transmitted diseases. And you could see their eyes opened up real quick. And suddenly, they got much more focused on the problem at hand. And suddenly, they were not as eager to maybe follow on some of those impulses as they had been. And then what was the motive? The motive had shifted from love to fear. Why? Immaturity. Immaturity. When life is about self. That's when, when, we're, when we're unconverted, when we're only interested in what's going to be, make us feel good, then fear comes in because we're interested in our own survival. We're interested in what will... And so fear-type doctrines will motivate the unconverted. The problem is, if they never actually experience the truth about God as revealed in Christ, then they develop an entire religious system and entire theologies and all this stuff still based on fear, and they continue to distort God, and people never grow up into maturity. And you read about this in Hebrews chapter 5, the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, where Paul says, look, by this time you should be grown-ups, not on this milk anymore, but on spiritual meat, because the immature, they're not, they're not even acquainted. They're not familiar in the least way with the teachings of righteousness. They're still focused on acts that lead to death, bad behaviors, the do and don'ts. You see? So there's a place for that. And I, and I tell you, I 
Uh, a year, year and a half ago, was it, Christy? We were at a, a church service over here at College Dale, and um, the pastor at the end of the service, a very moving service, very nice service about the love of God, at the end of the service uh, asked, you know, he said, I just feel the Spirit moving that somebody here, you know, give this opportunity to give their life to Christ. And I'm not going to make this long. I'm not going to drag this out. Um, I'm just going to give a brief chance. If you've, if you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to give you that chance. Come on forward. Was it one or two? One, two people. Two people came forward. Well, the, the pastor evidently felt moved in some way or another, and he said, okay. Uh, and then he changed his line, and he started in on, this may be the last time any of you have to give your hand, life to Christ. You may leave here today and get hit by a bus. You may get in a car accident. A lightning bolt may strike you. You may never have another chance to give your life to You could lose your eternal salvation. About 30 people came down. <laughs> This is what happened. I, we were there watching. I said, oh, here goes the old fear-based conversion. Fear-based conversion. This is why they do fear. Because they get a better response out of fear for many people than they do out of love. The interesting thing is, if you use Christ as your model and look at his preaching and his teaching to the masses where they were having so many people come, did he use fear-based on them? Or just present the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And this is what we are told to present. The truth about God sets free. It draws as a, a drawing power. So I, I hope that answers the question. Yes? I think it's, it's a matter of control, too. Where, where my sister lives, there's people who are afraid of this message and the message that Graham Maxwell um, spoke you know, years ago and, and through the years because they think that it causes Christian people to, to not, like, be so firm about living up to all the standards and stuff, to start thinking for themselves, and, and then there's a looseness that comes about. This is an excellent point, because they're afraid that this brings the message we teach, removing the fear, removing a God who's going to stand over with a lash and punish you, will lead to liberalism and loose morals and not living responsibly and so forth and so on. Is that true in any of your lives? Or as in fact, as you come to the truth of God's kingdom and you recognize that his laws are the the laws upon which your life has actually been designed to operate. And that when you step out of harmony with those laws, that God is is heartbreaking. He's going to do everything he can to protect you and save you. But those breaches in laws are are destroying you. They're damaging your character. They're warping your your reason. You're becoming hardened in heart. Uh, You are actually being destroyed as a person by those breaches. Does that cause you to be more likely to go out and break them? It didn't for me. It made me more likely to want to live in harmony with God's law and realize that's where real freedom is. And that's all the way down the line, even the laws of health. Why, why is it that, that uh, you know, the Bible tells you that God's law is the law of liberty? You know, as a kid, I remember before I really had this enlightenment that I always thought it was the law of enslavement. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do the other thing. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Did you ever feel that way? Yep. Yeah, and then I realized what real freedom is about, is, and it helped me as a doctor to see this. My patients who exercise their liberties to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, and they're certainly free to do that, aren't they? What happens with the violation of the law of health in exercising that freedom is that they destroy their lung function, and they get COPD, and they can't walk four steps without getting out of breath, and they have to wear oxygen everywhere they go, and they're tied to this hose. Are they still free? They've lost their freedom. They're enslaved now to the disease, the destruction, the violation of God's law. Freedom comes in harmony with his law. How about people who eat Big Macs and fries three times a week and gain 450 pounds? Are they as free? 
No, as we lose our physical health, we aren't as free to live. We can't, we can't function. We can't go out. We can't, we can't do things the sicker we get. In fact, we need people to serve us. We lose our ability to be giving of ourselves to serve others. And so as we're in harmony with God's laws, I, as we teach these things, I find it's just the opposite of the case. People actually are much more likely to be in harmony, but they do it from a, from a, a position of freedom and appreciation rather than the sense of obligation and restriction. Do you all not find that to be true? Yeah, I see a lot of heads nodding. Okay, Monday's lesson, because we do want to get to the points in the lesson too. The Shunammite woman, the story's about the Shunammite woman who builds a room on her home for Elisha. When Elisha asks what can be done for her, there's appreciation to show thanks. The servant Gehazi reports that she has no son and her husband is old. So Elisha tells her she will have a son. And of course, this meant a lot in that culture to a woman to have a son. It meant her security, her future, that if the husband dies, she will still have a place because women didn't inherit the property, so forth, so on and so on. Okay. Later, uh, the son dies and is, is, of course, resurrected. Now, first, first question. Was this, uh, was this child that was born, was it a miracle? Yes. Yeah. Was it a miracle on the same order as that which happened to Mary, the mother of Jesus? I want you to think through it because you're right. Your answer is right, but think through because we, we, so, and my question is, so is this miracle of a childbirth, uh, the idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon the woman and causing a pregnancy or is it merely, and maybe you shouldn't say merely, but is it God, uh, using his powers to heal a physical malady of infertility and then the pregnancy occurred as all pregnancies do, which way do you think it happened? Ladder. That's very important, isn't it? Because if God would have healed her physical malady, and she would have not engaged in the proper relations with her husband, would she have ever gotten pregnant? I think that through, because a lot of people attribute pregnancies to God. They do. You know, when you get pregnant, it's God. It's a miraculous thing. God is working to cause that to happen. Now, God gives abilities to his children. He's given us an ability. We can use it, and we cannot use it. Anyway, going on. So I, I agree with you. I think, it was a, I think it was a miracle. It was a miracle of a physical healing of a physical problem. That, that, that this woman struggled with, not a Holy Spirit impregnating the woman, as happened in the case of Mary. In the scripture, there are seven examples of miracle births, and all of these examples are metaphorical lessons that teach us about the virgin birth of our Messiah. Are you aware of those seven? You know the number of seven? First miracle one we have, of course, is um, Sarah, uh, who, uh, who was barren, and she had the promised child, the miracle birth of Isaac. And the, what's the story in this? What, what, what metaphor does Isaac teach us about the Messiah? Wasn't he voluntarily and willing to give his life? When dad was going to sacrifice him, he never argued. He just went right along, a humble, hum, humble laying down of his life that were necessary, teaching us that Christ would come and lay his life down. Rebecca, of course, uh, married uh, uh, to Isaac, um, was also a barren, and Isaac prayed, and God had a miracle, and she had the twins, and one of those, of course, was Jacob, who became the father, whose name became Israel, and became the uh, father of the nation of Israel, and Jesus, of course, is the cornerstone upon the church, and the twelve apostles upon which the church is built. And then there was Rachel, you notice the quick succession here, bam, 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 all three, boom, 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 were all barren, but all three had this miraculous healing, and Rachel, of course, gave birth to Joseph. And Joseph, of course, was sold into slavery. Christ, remember we just read, not think quality with God, came down into slavery, born of a woman under law, uh, becomes a servant. But 
who was then elevated to rulership after his humble servant and set his people free from slavery. Okay, or, or you know, um, saved, not, not saved his people from slavery, but saved his family from famine and starvation. And then Christ, of course, who was sold into slavery, but elevated to rulership and provides for us the spiritual nutrition that we need to save us from, from famine of, of uh, spiritual famine. And then there's Manoah's wife who gave birth to Samson. And Samson, of course, was a judge and ruler over Israel and, of course, fought against the enemies of Israel. And Christ, of course, is going to establish his laws to rule over the universe and, and to free us from the oppression of our enemies. And then there was Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, and Christ is our high priest, as Samuel was high priest. And then there was the Shunammite woman that we're talking about this week, and the Shunammite woman whose child died and was resurrected. And we have the dying and rising Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's one more. Anybody remember the last one? Elizabeth. Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, except he was, a, he was a enacted prophecy himself because Christ was the greatest of all the prophets. What do you think about those seven? Isn't that cool? Yeah. All right. Um, let's uh, move on to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson, the story of Naaman. And this is uh, a big focus of our, of our lesson for this week. And uh, it starts in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was a commander in the army of the king of Aram, He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master could see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Man, think about that. Do you know gold uh, this week is selling for $1,700 an ounce? Yeah. So he's got 6,000 shekels of gold going here. Okay? That's a lot there, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman, to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. Now, if you were the king, having received this from a very powerful leader of another nation who has no qualms about going to war at any time, and he arrives with leprosy on your doorstep with a letter saying, I've sent you this man, my my good servant, for you to cure him. How would you have responded? Well, here's how the king responds. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, I, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? So, what about today? You're, uh, you know, you're maybe ruler of a small little country. And the president of the United States sends uh, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, to you with a terminal cancer, with a letter saying, Hey, you're my guy of cancer. He's a good. He's a good. He's doing a good job for me. How would you respond? You think you might be a little bit intimidated? Oh, was the U.S. trying to take over my country? Are they trying to pick a war? Are they wanting to? Maybe you're an oil-rich country. When you get this letter, might you be? How about if you were uh, maybe 
bordering, I don't know, China, and the premier of China sent you this letter with one of his top generals. Would you be concerned? Yeah. So, would you, as the ruler here today, and this happened to you, would you tell the, the would, when you get this letter, would you look at the man with the leprosy and say, hey, um, go over to the Mississippi and bathe seven times? <laughs> would you say that? Yeah, it's, well, here's what Elisha did. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel torn his robes, he sent this message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that uh, there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went to his, uh, with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times, and notice, a messenger. Elisha doesn't even talk to him. The messenger comes. Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry, and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, uh, his God, and wave his hands over the spot and cure, uh, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Far, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. What do you think about Naaman's response? Process it. Think about it. As a kid, I never understood it. I really didn't. As a kid, when I, when we, you know, this is one of the children's stories. And we got this children's story. I always thought, if I had terrible leprosy and someone told me just to go wash seven times, that's easy. I'd go do that. I never understood his, 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 his response here. What do you think? Why do you think he did this? Yeah. I wonder sometimes if it isn't that he wanted a big flash, bam, boom, mm-hmm. the event, and, and, Somehow, he wanted to see power, miracle, real something. And going to Washington in a river is not very miraculous. I think there, I, I like it. I like it. What else? Any other thoughts? What's leprosy uh, in biblical terms sin. symbolic of? Sin. sin. And what is the root of sin? The root of it. Self. Self. Selfishness, self-centeredness, pride, self, arrogance, pride, self. Now, do you see, see a connection with, with, with maybe this, this healing that, that Elisha and God has for Naaman is maybe more than just a physical healing here? That they want to actually hear the heart too? And do you see a little pride going on in Naaman here? He wanted the prophet himself. The prophet doesn't come. So it's exposing some arrogance, some pride, some, I can't believe they would treat me. The, the, I bring all the stuff. I mean, how are they doing me this way? Okay? So maybe the, the healing of the physical malady comes when, when Naaman has a change of heart enough that he can humble himself and go and bathe in this river that he thinks he shouldn't have to bathe into. So maybe God is wanting more than just to heal his skin. What do you think? And if Naaman comes out, and if the prophet comes out and just waves his hands, heals the spots, boom, they're gone, does that help Naaman's heart? No. So I'm suggesting that perhaps that what happened here was that God was really wanting to heal Naaman, heal him all the way. And so this is why this came. And then, of course, what happens is the servants of Naaman not hung up on pride, having lived the lives of servants, right? You think that they're not very proud, probably. They're something washing a river. That's easy, man. They're ready to roll. Maybe that's why I was able to think that way as a kid, because I had all my home chores to do all the time. I was easy. But but you think that Naaman being in charge listened to his servants. Yeah, well, that's what we're about to say. Naaman's servants went out and said to him, My father, if father, if, if the prophet had told you some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. 
Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So why do you think, and any other questions or comments first about the healing itself, and then let's talk about why Elisha refused. Any comments about the healing? Yes. Well, this whole concept of friend versus servant, I think the fact that those servants talked to him and convinced him, he treated them as friends as right. opposed to being servants. And that's why he was, they were willing to go to him. If they didn't like him, if, they, if he were always, they were always under his thumb, they would have said, okay, fine, let's go home. And instead they said, hey, listen to this. You know, come on. Because they, they were friends, I, was, I guess I would say. Yes, I like it very much. Did they act the role of a friend? Yes. They were really concerned for his welfare, not just the role of a servant. I like that very much. And if you think about God's friends, the two, we, the two that Graham mentioned in his, his little piece there, uh, Moses and Abraham. When Abraham, uh, when God came down and told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, Abraham said, well, God said it. I believe it. Hey, let's just watch. The, let's get our, our, our veggie-weenies and have a roast. Okay? No, he didn't do that. He said, hey, you, you, the Lord of all the earth must do what is right. Imagine. You impudent little scoundrel. How do you talk to the commander of all the universe this way, telling me what I should do, what is right? No, that's what he said. Abraham, read the text. The Lord of all the earth, surely you'll do what is right. You wouldn't destroy it for 50, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10. And do you notice when, when uh, the Lord stopped giving mercy to Sodom? It was when Abraham stopped asking. Abraham stopped asking at 10. That's when the Lord stopped, stopped at 10. We don't know what had happened. The Lord, Abraham said, about for five. How about for two? We don't know. Abraham didn't ask. Every time Abraham asked, the Lord gave more, gave more, more mercy, more mercy, more mercy. And so we have friendship here. Abraham concerned about, hey, what, what will people think if you just come and destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then we have Moses at, uh, at the mountain where God comes down. I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you. And Moses said, cool. My generation, my, my, my progeny will, will rule forever. Hallelujah. The Lord has said it. I believe it. Let's do it. No. He said, take my name out of the book. No, you can't do this. Uh, you can't bring these people out of Israel. The whole world is watching you right now, Lord. If you bring this people out here to kill them, they will think bad things of you. You can't do it. He was concerned for God, a friend, just like name and servants. I think that's what real, real friendship servant balance is. We, we serve in love, but we're concerned for the one that we serve. Yeah, I like it. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay. Um, so do you think Elisha, why do you think Elisha would not take the reward? Yes. I think he was trying to demonstrate the character of God to Naaman, that God is loving, he wants to heal, he wants to restore us. And he does it free by us asking for it. Naaman had come and he'd asked. And so there is no payment other than friendship or, and I mean that. I understand. I don't yeah. want to suggest that there's something other than that. But, um, and I think, so that's, that's what he was trying to demonstrate. And of course, as we're going to see, Gehazi blew that all apart. Yeah. But shouldn't Elisha have taken the, the large funds of money and started a building fund for a new church? <laughs> or perhaps a Samaritan Center, or maybe a new food bank with a sanitarium. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps he was trying to show a contrast between what Naaman was used to. He was probably used to going to pagan priests, 
you know, dealing with the idols, and they did require some of the money or goods. And here he had something real that had been done for him, something tangible that he could see in his own flesh, and yet his request to give what he could clearly afford to give Say no, I won't take it. I won't take it. So yeah, he was he was he was drawing that contrast while still illustrating the character of God, you know, in a, in a way that's quite tangible to me. I, I very much agree with both of you. And do you notice? And I haven't said it yet through here, but do you notice in the question, the central question that Graham always asked, and we're answering it without even asking it? But what does this story tell us about God? And that's the question: is is this story revealing something to us about God as we as we're unfolding it here today? And it should be. And, and it can be told in several different ways. Uh, hopefully we're seeing a, a loving and gracious God. You're making that contrast. I, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, so this idea of not accepting gifts. What if pastors today practice the same philosophy as Elisha? Did Jesus get a salary? What about the Apostle Paul? He worked for his living. He wouldn't take a salary. If pastors were required to support themselves like Paul... Do you think it would change the composition of the pastorate in any way? Yeah. Hmm. Do you think we gain or lose as a church when the pastorate becomes a career rather than a calling? Just a thought, something to think about. Okay. Um, Then uh, Naaman goes on. If not, if you will not, please uh, let me, your servant, uh, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any god but but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there too. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Thoughts. What about Naaman's request? Was he compromising principles here? Well, he, he grew up with the idea that gods were very local. And if he was going to worship Elisha's God, he'd have to have part of Israel's dirt in order for the God to be effective. Okay, I like what she's saying. Did you, everybody hear that? Okay, so, so even though Naaman has come to realize there's only one true God, he hasn't yet quite expanded his understanding that God is the creator of the entire universe, that he is uh, 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 omnipresent, that, he's, that there's only one true God maybe, um, or, or that, that is, he's somehow localized still and he has to take some dirt back so that he can worship the one true God who's local to his own dirt. And then what about this request to, to bow down? with? Shouldn't he have been more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He didn't know as much as they did. She said he didn't know as much as they did. What do you all think? Do you think he was compromising at all? Well, it makes it appear that his master was depending on him. Yes, it makes it sound to me like his master, uh, he would go in with him, his master would lean on him, and he was really assisting the old man down. (laughs) He was doing, you know, uh, uh, imagine, imagine some of you maybe working as a nurse's aide at Memorial Hospital. And, you know, Memorial Hospital uh, is, um, is a Catholic hospital. And maybe one of the patients you have to assist is ask you to take them down to the chapel. And you have to assist them down, to, down on their knees to, to help uh, for some ritual that you don't believe uh, is really appropriate or necessary. Would you be compromising and betraying your trust and faith in the Lord to help them do that? No. Well, like no. I said, God understands. 
Should you say to that person, hey, wait a minute, uh, this isn't the right thing now? <laughs> no. Okay, Wednesday's lesson. Na- uh, Ge- Gehazi goes to seek reward from Naaman. Uh, and he goes and asks for this reward. And as you know, I won't have time to read the whole thing. But he goes, he, and he makes up a lie, tells him that some pe- prophets have come and need some clothes for the prophets, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, Naaman gladly uh, gives him more than he even asked for. He comes back, tells another lie to Elisha, and Elisha confronts him. And, um, and it says um, down here in verse... Um, let's start with 26. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servant and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous as white as snow. Now you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Why his descendants? Why his descendants? Okay. First question though. Do you think this was leprosy as we know leprosy, Hansen's disease? No, no. It was not. You've ever, if you ever looked at Hansen's disease, and you just go home, type in leprosy or Hansen's disease in your search engine under images, you will find pictures all over. Leprosy does not turn the skin white. Yeah, psoriasis, yes, no. does. psoriasis does, but so does vitiligo. Vitiligo and psoriasis turn the skin white as snow. And so this is most likely a non-contagious um, skin ailment. And I'm not sure which one it was. We're not told. But whatever it was, it turned to skin white as snow. I suspect it was probably vitiligo or, or, or psoriasis, one of the two. Um, and more than likely, because he was in the king's court, I suspect it was vitiligo. Because psoriasis will often result in cracking and bleeding. And with the Israeli, in, the, in the laws of Israel at that time, he was having cracking and bleeding skin. I don't think he would have been in the king's court because that would have made him unclean to be around. And so since we find him in the king's court later, and if you want to see that, go type in vitiligo and look at some of the pictures that come up on the, on the search engines of people with vitiligo, and you see it's quite disfiguring, quite disfiguring. You will stand out. People will, will notice you. And these are, these are people with Middle Eastern descent, so they have a little bit of a darker pigment, pigment than, say, the Scandinavians do, and it stands out quite significant. And so he would be, would be marked in that way. So question why do the why do the progeny why do the descendants what do y'all think? As a remembrance. Why should they suffer what? remembrance? Or was this some? It's in the genetic code. Or is it just something that's going to be in the genes that pass along down to the third and fourth generations that does in the commandments? Now vitiligo isn't isn't genetic in that way that I know, is it? Yeah. It's autoimmune, is what they think. It's an autoimmune disorder. So. But it's had S back female. Yeah, you'll see, you'll see it running. Families? Families, So, autoimmune disorder, potentially. Anyway, I suspect it has something to do along those lines, but we're not told. And we're also not told that if it really went down through all the generations forever and ever, does that mean everybody who pops up with vitiligo is a descendant of Gehazi? (laughs) No, I doubt it. Okay, and then he pops up in the king's court. Let's finish out the lesson in Thursday's lesson. Pops up in the king's court. And uh, he is telling about the Shunammite woman and her son and the son's resurrection when the, uh, when the woman just happens to come back after being away for seven years. There was a famine in the land. The woman, the Shunammite woman and her son leave her home, go to a place where they can survive. Uh, seven years later, they come back. Famine is over, but somebody has taken her property, moved into her house, and she wants her property back. And she just happens to present herself to court of the king's court on the day that Gehazi was telling the king about the Shunammite woman and the resurrection. 
She says she thinks it was providential. Yes. Just happens to do it that day. Do you think there was just a happenstance? This is, uh, this is out of Conflict and Courage, page 371. Think this, think this through carefully in our lives today. Each actor in history stands in his lot and place. For God's great work after his own plan will be carried out by men who have prepared themselves to fill positions for good or evil. In opposition to righteousness, men become instruments of unrighteousness. But they are not forced to take this course of action. They need not become instruments of unrighteousness any more than Cain needed to. Men of all characters, righteous and unrighteous, will stand in their several positions in God's plan. With the characters they have formed, they will act their part in the fulfillment of history. In a, in a crisis, just at the right moment, they will stand in the places they, ha- they have prepared themselves to fill. Believers and unbelievers will fall into line as witnesses to confirm truth that they themselves do not comprehend. All will cooperate in accomplishing the purposes of God, just as did Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod. In putting Christ to death, the priests thought that they were carrying out their own purposes, but unconsciously and unintentionally, unintentionally they were fulfilling the purpose of God. Yeah. What do you think about that? I love that. I just, I just love that. If you t- just let your mind meditate on the implications there. Because do you notice the balance here about how it was emphasized that every person freely makes their own course, chooses their own way, develops their own character, is not forced to take any course of action, but God in his foreknowledge knows the course and actions we're going to take, leaves us free to do whatever we want, but he, in knowing the course and actions we're going to take, still can see and still can plan and still can bring about ultimately his grand causes to the ultimate end. What he he can't do, because of his restraint of his own character, his own character functions in a certain way, he can't use his power to force people to love him. He can't do that. Can he? No. That's why some will be lost. But those who choose against him, in his foreknowledge, he can still choose to allow them to occupy positions and understanding their natures and characters, uh, uh, have events orchestrate so that they will act their part that they have prepared themselves for. I find it fascinating. Question, as we close today. What part are you preparing yourself to fulfill? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth as you revealed it in Christ. We thank you for the friends who have served you well through the years. We want to thank you for, for the blessings that we've received from friends like your prophets of old who've given us the scripture, from uh, Ellen White, from, from more recently Graham. And, and we ask that you would remember the Maxwell family at this time as they are grieving this loss. And may this be an opportunity for us to revisit and reconsider the thoughts that he has challenged us with and look at the evidences of Scripture and be persuaded in our own minds that you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.